Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Born to Rain. We're reading more books today. Um, this one is under a little bit less than ideal circumstances, unfortunately. As good as the book is, um, this episode and the timeliness of it is uh, we received tragic news this week that uh, Pastor Greg Strawbridge tragically passed away um, earlier this this past week. Um, and a faithful man of God, faithful pastor. Um, and so as a kind of an homage to that and wanting to, to point to the, the faithfulness of his ministry, we wanted to review one of his um, probably more well-known books and you know one of those things that he's going to be well-remembered for. Uh, this is a book that he edited and assembled. It's, uh, it's a collection of essays. The book is called The Case for Covenant Communion. Um, edited and compiled by Greg Strawbridge, of course. Jeremiah, this is one of your like favorite, favorite books. Yeah, I really um, like it. So I, the, the reason I like it, I, lo- I really like the setup of this kind of book where it's more of a collection of essays. I think that that, I, I, maybe it's because I'm a little bit ADHD and I like to switch from topic to topic to topic. So I think every essay kind of being a different topic is for me, it keeps me interested, intrigued the entire time. And in this book, you have some heavy hitters, some really good writers. Yeah. I mean, so when we, when we look through the, the table of contents, so from a, from a sky-high perspective, um, book's about 200 pages. Overall, when, how long would you, take, would you say it took you to read it? Uh, I, because I was so fascinated, maybe total like three hours. Okay. I was just tearing, tearing through it. Yeah, it took, it's taken me about, so I picked this up, let's see, we're recording on Saturday. Um, I picked this up on Wednesday and finished it in, so that's about four days worth of, of reading. Um, I'd say, again, being a very slow reader personally, uh, it, I'd say it took me about maybe six hours tops. So um, yeah, so 200 pages, three to six hours, depending on how, how aggressively you do. Um, when I when I first read this, I had just finished Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and so my reading comprehension was at like an all time high, and so <laughs> reading this was like it was so easy, and so it just went so fast. But I bet you, if I were to read this right now, that I would, <laughs> I think I would struggle through it. It'd probably take me like five six hours as well. Yeah, and it's it most of it. It's not that it's difficult reading. Um, I think it's very it's very accessible. I think it, it, when you're talking about. Um, what do we do with covenant children is this, this is kind of that book that you want to say, okay, here, read this, um, take, take this book and either side, you know, whatever you want to land on. This is one of those types of books that, you know, should, and this, maybe I even back up here as far as a, what the sky high view of the book is. Right. Yeah. When you look at the debates that happen in house, as far as Christians go, there's all sorts of Christian debates, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, uh, pedo-baptism, credo-baptism, and then credo-communion, pedo-communion. Um, what you have in this sense is this is really largely an in-house pedo-baptist debate is what this book is for. So this is somebody, um, Greg Strawbridge has another book similar title, uh, the case for covenant infant baptism. Um, that's a very similar collection of essays that 
defends the practice of infant baptism. Um, that is kind of a predecessor to this one. And we've talked a mm-hmm. lot on the show about infant baptism. So that's why we chose to do this book in particular is when you, when you come to infant baptism, let's say, so for, for this case to read this book, you don't have to be convinced of infant baptism, but if you, if you're not a pedo Baptist, you read this book and you're kind of reading it from the bleachers. Right. You know, yeah. you're, you're reading it going, okay, it's good to know like what kind of the, the arguments are within this. Um, but I don't have any skin in this game. You're not, <clears throat> you're not right. there. Uh, so the, the question really is, okay, so we've baptized our babies. When do the, the children get to take communion? Right. And this book is the case for covenant communion saying, okay, our children have been baptized. They're covenant members they should be allowed to come to the Lord's table. Right. Yeah. From the bleachers, let's say you are, let's say you are reading this from the bleachers. What you will get is a very solid understanding of old covenant meals and celebrations and festivals. That's the main thing that I got from this book was, well, this book and all my other reading on this topic of Pedo communion was I walked away, uh, having a higher confidence in my level of knowledge on the old covenant sacrificial system who ate of it, um, who, who was involved, uh, the different laws surrounding it. So it was really beneficial. This might actually be a, a good topic, even if, you, if you're not a paedo-baptist, to read just, just to hear. Because oftentimes when you have debates around a certain topic, you see it in like positive light, photo negative, and you just get to know it better. Right. In this topic, you really get to see the mosaic uh, festivals in a positive light photo negative from this angle from this angle and then you just get to know the topic better uh, so i think it is beneficial no matter what and and who knows you never know you might come to be pedo baptist by first understanding these arguments you never know yeah. i mean well i mean so the last essay in the book it's actually treated as an appendix is the presbyterian doctrines of covenant children um oh yeah which we've actually already We've done reviewed a on this show. Yeah. Um, so we reviewed this. That's an outstanding this essay. essay. So it's the Presbyterian doctrines of covenant children, covenant nurture, and covenant succession. Um, so we've already discussed that on the show. So if you go listen to that episode, you kind of get the idea of uh, some of these things. That's just an appendix in this book. So right. <laughs> so right. Like as good as that in article that was, but that that um, essay is what convinced Pastor Douglas Wilson. Right. To be a Pedo Baptist. Right. So this is a book on Pedo communion, but that essay is an essay on uh, what what he says is this this is what got me to put my water where my mouth is. Right. Yeah. Um, and Doug Wilson writes the uh, forward to this book. Yeah. Which is really good. It was it was the story he tells is awesome. Yeah, it's terrific. I loved it. So I think if we if we say that the the case for uh, Pedo baptism is to say we're going to put our water where our mouth is, right? We're going to treat our children like Christians. We're going to raise them like Christians. They're in a Christian household. Um, this book is to say uh, put your bread and wine where your water is. Right? So, right. so you put your water where your mouth is. Now put your bread and wine where the water is, uh, right. which is also in your mouth. Uh, so uh, so that's that's what kind of the, the big case is. Do you want to just kind of like we can just take like big – uh, big sure. ideas from each of these chapters. So the first, the, the first chapter is called "A Presbyterian Defense of Pedo Communion" uh, by Robert Rayburn. 
I don't. I, I think uh, what was special about that one was Robert Rayburn is a covenant child, uh, a Presbyterian covenant child from from birth, mm-hmm. and I think what made his his uh, defense so powerful was his testimony of was his personal testimony and his theological grounding in the Reformed tradition. And so, because a lot of the times, if you see something that's shiny, sometimes you can see, you can tell when somebody sees a new idea and it's shiny and novel to them and therefore they want it. In his defense, he talks about how he loves the Reformed tradition. He was raised in it. He owes everything to it. And so he didn't necessarily want the Reformed tradition to be right. And so I think that was a great intro to the book was because like, okay, so this guy, the, this guy thinks that uh, the practices of credo communion are wrong and he didn't even want them to be wrong. So that to me, I was like, okay, that's a, <laughs> that, that's pretty big. And so that, that's my main takeaway, for, takeaway from that because the, the, the essay is very introductory. It's not really. Yeah, and it's a it's a great it's a great one to start the book with. Um, it's just kind of lays out the case again. Like when I say this is an in house debate, um, well, there are there are a couple of Reformed Anglican uh, articles in the in this book. Um, it's largely an in house uh, Presbyterian debate, um, and so starting off with this with an essay on the Presbyterian doctrine of this, it kind of just re- presents a very positive case. And so I think, and this is, this is throughout, and I think this is really interesting uh, just as a way the book reads is that it's a very, it's a positive case. Um, there are a few places where they're like, Hey, look, you guys are just flat out wrong for excluding your children from communion. Um, but overall, like even if you walk away unconvinced of pedo communion, you read this book and go, okay, these guys sincerely believe the things that they believe and they're trying they're trying to call people to consistency i think that's if i were to just sum up the the book in that that very simple way is that it's a call to consistency Mm -hmm. um and so uh, that that theme kind of runs throughout and so it's not a heavy-handed book as it goes through it's a very um positive case they're saying here's our case for why children should be included in the covenant meal. So you might get frustrated. This is one of those, you might get frustrated reading this as a Baptist. You know, if you're not on the paedo-baptist side of things, you're going to get frustrated reading this going, well, you just assumed that you should baptize children. Well, if you, if you disagree with that, (laughs) go read the, um, the case for covenant infant baptism. Like that's, that's where that case is presented. And so there, there are times when it's okay to assume other things. And I think there, I mean, there's several times in this book that the, the authors are like, I've written extensively about this elsewhere. I'm not going to get into that now. And so right. you might get frustrated reading it as a Baptist and go, well, why are you assuming that infant baptism is the, the pattern? Well, just <laughs> take that that's the stance that everybody's coming from and, and, and go with it. Um, but a lot of this kind of comes down to the question of that a, a lot of Baptists will raise against Presbyterians, and this is what the the second chapter is about, is that a lot of Baptists will try and say, well, you guys baptize your kids, but then you make them wait until they have communion. Like this is a, this is the, if we're going to use the analogy of being in the bleachers, this is the, um, this is the person in the bleachers watching the game and seeing a foul committed and 
wondering why the refs didn't blow the whistle. <laughs> you know, it's like that was a that was a foul. Why did you guys why why didn't you uh, call call the foul there? That's a lot of what this is. Is that it's going? Hey, there was supposed to be. You guys are inconsistent, and we can see that from the bleachers. If I grant pedo baptism, why are you baptizing but not communing? Uh, your children as well. Uh, so the second chapter is Presbyterian, examine thyself. <clears throat> yeah, this is by Jeff Myers. This is a really good one. He, uh, It's mostly an examination of 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, which says examine thyself. And he talks about how the word there, examine, he kind of takes you through the Bible and looks at the uses of that word. And the word there is dokematso. And it's interesting that that word is used like prove, prove yourself. Mm -hmm. And so there could be an argument made for the word examine not not uh, being the best translation of the word dokimatso mm -hmm. because Paul, it, you if you take Paul as saying prove yourself or examine yourself, those are, those are two different things in our English language today. Examine yourself to us means very introspectively. Uh, prove yourself means to do something publicly in front of other people in order to uh, gain their approval. And so those two things can be very different when you're talking about excluding other people from the table. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, he's telling them don't exclude people from the table, so prove yourself. And so, so, so the uh, assumption is that you're not going to exclude anybody. But if, the, but if uh, he's saying examine yourself uh, introspectively and like uh, confess to the Lord all your like individual sins right then and there before you take communion that you, you can see how the misunderstanding of that word can lead to a cradle communion uh, belief. Um, I, well, cause the, cause the typical interpretation of the passage is examine yourself um, so that you can rightly discern the body. Right. And the, the assumption there is, do you understand communion? Right. Right. Examine yourself, make it somber, make it very serious. If you're not super like melancholy when you come to the table because you realize that this is um, Christ's body and blood, you know, you're, you've missed the point. Um, but he's saying, he points out a lot of the different inconsistencies in the, um, the presentation of that. And this is where I, I appreciate reading uh, better men. <laughs> Right. Uh, when I when I read these guys who are very well thought out in their arguments and in their reasonings, they will pick up on inconsistencies that I wouldn't have otherwise really thought about. You know, you think about okay, well, examine thyself uh, to discern the Lord's body, and he goes, well, look, there's these issues with the rest of the passage that if you're saying this is purely an introspective, whether I can tell that this is Jesus' uh, body and blood. Um, He's like, this is actually, this is bigger problem than it is. It's not just about the bread and the wine on the table. This is about the body, the, the, the body of Christ, the, the church. The church. Yeah. Um, and so when he, when he draws those out, you go, oh, well, that makes, that actually makes a lot of sense that, okay, we're connecting these dots and you kind of realize how many times uh, we, I, I read an article a while back um, that said how we, I think it was a gospel coalition article, but it's called how we, how we read the Bible wrongly and get it right. <laughs> and I think there are, there are some times where it's like, 
you read a passage like this, examine yourself uh, to discern the Lord's body. Is it good to think about the sacrifice that the Lord made when you came to the uh, when you come to the table? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh-huh. there, there's no problem with that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly what this passage is talking about. Right. And when you zoom out and you see the larger context of what Paul is doing in First Corinthians. Um, 11, you start to see, okay, well, he's not actually talking about me being sad and somber when I come to the table, though those are fine practices. You shouldn't be irreverent when you're taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, but it, when it comes down to taking taking the Lord's Supper, discerning the body means who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. And we're act, when actively excluding people who ought to be admitted to the table just because they don't have the same intellectual capacity for... Um, for what the what the table signifies um, is not grounds for excluding somebody because then it's just a matter of like every Sunday you should be going through the church going, who understands it best, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And only the person who understands it best should get to take it because everybody else doesn't clearly doesn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up with Rome right. <laughs> where the cup goes solely to the, solely to the clergy and mm-hmm. not to the, the people. Um, so you have, I mean, that that's, ultimately how that kind of ends up going. Right. It's interesting. It's interesting when you, when you look at these topics, how sometimes when the debate of a passage, you're like, wow, this is either black or white because in, in there, in the opposing scheme that this book is writing against, you either believe that you have to introspectively and intellectually examine yourself and therefore discern the sacrament itself, the elements of the sacrament, or you believe that you are, outwardly proving yourself so as to not exclude anybody in the body, which is the church. And one of those allows you to exclude children. And the other one is telling you don't exclude, right. <laughs> don't exclude children. And uh, when you look at first Corinthians 10 and first Corinthians 12, which both include children in the covenant, um, it becomes, it, it just be, it's really good. It, I think he does a really good job of bringing that out. And I try not to mix it up with other books I've read on the topic. Uh, but that's pretty much the, the the depth of this chapter. Yeah. Let's see. Chapter chapter three is um, the kingdom of God and children um, by Tim Gallant. Yeah, and Tim Gallant has his own book that is um, really really good. This this book that is very introductory. Feed my lambs. Yeah, feed right. my lambs. That Tim Gallant's book is um, probably the definitive the definitive uh, book on the topic that I would send anybody to if they're wondering about it. Um, But his chapter is um, kind of about children in the kingdom, how they're not second-class citizens in the kingdom. Chapter four is um, children and the religious meals of the old creation. This is Jim Jordan. Um, Now, this this is... when When you told me to read this book, you said this was one of the two most important chapters in the book. Yeah. Why would you say that? Because... um. Everybody understands um, from all the all the all of the Reformed tradition understands that the the nature of the Lord's Supper is um, gotten from the nature of the sacramental system in the older covenant. That's that's always been understood. I mean, you can look as far as you can look into the Scots Confession. It's right there where um, it's in the Scots Confession that the Passover um, is that the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover, just as baptism is a fulfillment of circumcision. Mm. So we're, we're always looking back to the Old Covenant and seeing what is the Lord's Supper fulfilling. And so therefore, the nature of the Old Covenant f- 
festivals and sacrifices and stuff becomes very important when you're considering this topic of who should be included, because then you can look uh, who was included in the old covenant version of this meal. And uh, does that carry over just like we do with baptism and circumcision? You see, like the the right. corollary there. Well, I think it's uh, it's like uh, Pastor Shishko talks about um, Bill Shishko um, when he talks about um, radical changes, right, from old covenant to new covenant. If if we're gonna make such a radical change, when in the old covenant the people of God included their children and were explicitly included. Like the, um, I don't remember, I actually don't remember which chapter it was in, but when it talks about the, the, the author was pointing to um, the exodus from Egypt. Um, uh, Pharaoh wanted them to leave the children and the Israelites said, no, our children <laughs> must be included in this. Um, we will take our children. They will come with us. Um, and so when they when they go out into the wilderness, the children, well, first the Passover, and the Passover was told to instruct your children about what God was doing in this. God is delivering us. This whole meal is about God's delivering his people. Now we go out into the wilderness. Um, we're, we're leaving Egypt. You're, how many times are we told that this is something to teach your children, teach your children, teach your children? When you take the Passover... You're not taking the Passover and excluding the children. Now Jesus changes the Passover to be the Lord's Supper. You know, we don't call it the Passover anymore. We call it the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. This is him taking an old thing and making it new. And it's not a radical change. Like the bread and the wine are still there. It's still the same thing. And it's he's showing that this the whole time was pointing to me. Right. That this was all pointing to me. And not once in the New Testament does it tell us that we should exclude the children. The children were were included, explicitly included in this festival early in their life. Now, how if we're going to make such a radical change? That's what Pastor Shishko says. If we're gonna if we're gonna make a radical change to this practice, you need explicit. Things the burden of proof would be on the exclusionist. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's and that's where it is. What's important about this is that uh, James Jordan goes through all the meals and talks about, um, I think almost every or every single meal in the old creation, the old covenant included children. Right. And so there's really the peace o- the peace offerings the Levites children were included. That it was not just the priests that ate the ate the sacrificial lamb. It was. They took the sacrifice and they fed yep. their children. Even even the Day of Atonement, their, yeah. their families would eat of that. Yeah. Um, chapter five: Christ's Way Bread for the Child by Ray Sutton. This is one that I really appreciated because I, I mean, it starts out with a Tolkien reference, so I was just like on board right off the bat. <laughs> right. So right, and I I really appreciate Ray Sutton. I really <laughs> like the guy. Um, but I appreciated this because a lot of the times we're just kind of talking. Um, about theological distinctions and yada, yada, yada. But as soon as somebody says, hey, I think it might benefit my one-year-old for him to take the Lord's Supper, it's like, oh, whoa, man, you're, 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 sat, you're falling into sacerdotalism and you're being uh, superstitious and you're being weird. I'm like, I thought we all agreed that the sacrament had an objective nature. And it could, and, and so that, that's what I really appreciated was uh, I this this chapter does put forth that 
this, the Lord's Supper is way bread. It is for children and right. it is for their benefit. And Jesus, it's not weird to say that. Jesus holds up the bread and the cup and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. And earlier in his life, he said, suffer not the little children to come to me. <laughs> so he invites he invites believers to come to him. And he says, children should come to him. And he says, this is my body. Why should the children not be allowed to come to his table? Um, yeah, and I thought, I mean, it was just, it was a very, very good chapter. I don't want to spoil too much of this book, but it's, a, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot we of should, good stuff. We should um, cut it off. I, I mean, I might cut it off here because the, and I won't even comment. I'll say this was my favorite chapter was Which one? the infant faith in the Psalter. Oh yeah, that was a very good one. One of the things that kind of persuaded me towards infant baptism was that idea that infants can have faith. Um, infants being able to have faith is one of the th- primary objections to infant um, baptism. Yep. So that's kind of what what swung me that way. And so it's like you read, he, he has this extended section on Psalm 22 where David says, I trusted on you from my mother's breast. That's pretty conclusive that that was a, a very young child that had faith. <laughs> Unless. <laughs> uh, Don't go there. I won't, I won't, fin- I won't finish that. I think, uh, let, the, let the hearer understand. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's very obvious that's there. And so then what I appreciate is like you read this and you go, I read a, a chapter like um, Psalm 22. And I go, wow, that seems very, very clear that an infant can have faith. I read of John the Baptist leaping in the womb um, at the at the sound of his Savior. Um, that seems like infant faith. When it says that um, from a little child, Timothy was instructed in those things and the word being brephos, the word for Infancy. infant, not child. Like yeah. there's a separate word for children. Mm-hmm. He was trained in that from infancy. Right. Um, like I read these passages and I go, wow, that seems very clear that infants can have faith. Well, what's what's striking to me is that, uh, and Rich Lusk kind of brings this out, is it's not just clear that infants can have faith, but it's clear through these passages that it was the normative expectation of God's covenant people right. that their infants have faith. Right. Because Psalm 22, remember, is a worship song written for the entire congregation. Right. So David expected the entire congregation to sing that and mean it. So the normative experience uh, for the congregation, for the church, is for us to all sing together, I trusted on you from my mother's breast. And Paul reaffirms the truth of the Psalms when he says, sing to you, sing a psalm, a hymn. Um, uh, what is it? What's the third part of that? A song, a hymn, a spiritual song. A spiritual song. So, and Paul's not telling us to lie when we sing. Yeah. So here it was one of his comments. He said, how did David know that he had faith as an infant? Certainly not through conscience remembrance, (laughs) their conscious remembrance. Obviously, none of us can remember that far back in our experience, but it seems that this observation only strengthens the case for infant faith as a general covenant-wide phenomenon. David must derive the fact that he had faith as an infant from broader covenant principles, that is, from the covenant promises as such. God's declaration that he is a God to our children must include giving them his spirit, who enables them to have a trusting relationship with their heavenly father, even apart from ordinary means. Infant faith is a normative covenant reality. 
And then he goes on to describe that the Psalter was the, the hymn book of God's people, Old Covenant and New Covenant. And so adults and children alike would sing, I've trusted on you from my mother's breast. And that's exactly what you're talking about. This is expected to be normative. The entire congregation of Israel was taught to sing this song, I've trusted on you from my mother's breast. That uh, from my earliest days, I was taught to trust in God. If that's not infant faith and that's not normative infant faith, then that's that's where we have to do that. And so th- I think that that chapter for me was one of those where like you read the scriptures and you you come to a position and you go, I think this is right. <laughs> this is right. And then you read somebody with a much clearer grasp of scripture than you uh, than you have. And he um, points out things that you missed and confirms the things that you that you were studying. And, and so it's interesting. We're like, and then I, I appreciate when you read these and, and you see the logical progression of like, here's how we interpret this passage. Um, I think saying that an infant can have faith is un, unquestioned. Um, it, yeah, among everybody. You have to do some gymnastics to actually get around that that passage. Obviously, that doesn't take you directly to infant communion. And he does in this essay, he does get to that at the very end of it. But his whole defense is that infants can have faith, um, which is a typical Baptist objection to baptizing infants. And so he uses this as an argument for those who already agree that we should baptize the infants to say, look, if you're objecting to them taking communion because they don't have enough faith to, you know, or can't articulate their faith, well, the scriptures already clearly teach that the child has faith. And so um, why, why not include it uh, there? I'm just going to try not to respond to everything you said. Um, <laughs> but in closing, we'd be remiss if we didn't read a quote from Greg Strawbridge's chapter, The Polemics of Infant Baptism. Another excellent chapter. Yeah. I, that was probably my second favorite. It, it was really, it's really good. It's a really good uh, um summary and I, I like that he, he he's not afraid of calvin he, he he quotes calvin he's like it's what calvin thought i mean he's quoting uh warfield and calvin and all these people right um that's another thing i appreciate about this book these guys are not a are not um running from the other position like they right they're reading it and saying look i thought calvin was gonna be right on this but I, I and they recognize is. that giants are on the other side Right, <laughs> you know, you got Calvin, you got Luther, you got Zwingli, you got. Um, well, Luther's questionable. Sure, he has. He there, has, there is a passage in two. here that gives a case that Luther was, but yeah. Um, but overall, I mean, you've got Calvin, Zwingli, um, Knox, Knox, uh, the majority of the Reformed tradition, just ev- really. basically everybody. Um, which but, is funny. There was a, there was there is a quote in here, and I think it's in Strawbridge's uh, chapter that he po- he points out. He's like. Uh, we kept we kept the Romist the most Romish part right. of communion yeah, no by not including the children. He's like, this is this seems like a glaring uh, mishap on the part of right. our uh, our reformed forefathers. Right, but there there so Wolfgang Musculus he was the reformer of uh, Strasbourg. Oh wait, I, I might no Strasbourg Boot- like Eastern Colorado Strasbourg. Yeah, no. <laughs> No, Bootser was a reformer of Strasbourg. I forget where Wolfgang Musculus ministered, but he was mentored by Calvin. I mean, I mean uh, um, 
uh, Bootser as well. Musculus was a, he sold more books in his day than any of the others. Mm. He, he was very renowned and, and he was pro Pedo communion. Um, Augustine was like, there's a lot of big hitters on the other side as well. So it's not just a like randos in the 20th century versus uh, all these other guys. Right. <laughs> but it's not like that matters too much. But here's, here's a, uh, Greg Strawbridge, he says... What does Selbrady call that? Chronological snobbery? Yeah, yeah. I believe that theological consistency, historical precedent, challenges its practical and conceptual exclusion, and covenant signs and promises, all of these require an inclusion of the children of the faithful at the font and the table. Covenant children are members of the church. Let them lament no longer. Arise. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. So this concludes our... Uh, Born to Read. This is The Case for Covenant Communion, edited by Greg Strawbridge, uh, forward by Douglas Wilson, essays by numerous big hitters and very talented men. Um, can't wait to discuss with Dr. Strawbridge at the Resurrection how this book impacted me. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's 10 to $15 on wordmp3.com. Yeah, which is Greg Strawbridge's uh ministry so go in there support him his ministry his family um obviously be praying for the strawbridge family as they they grieve the the sudden loss of of pastor greg um final thing before we go what do you give it uh, i give it a 10 okay i'll give it a solid uh, uh. you remember the appendix though remember the appendix yeah i'll give it a nine that's even with the appendix yeah wow yeah you're hard I'm a, I'm a hard man to please, but yeah, that, that's where I stand. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again for joining us. This has been another episode of Born to Read. We will catch you guys next time.